Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price. I'm a medical oncologist at the Ottawa Hospital and immediate past president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series, I'll be interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, and some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country and indeed in the world to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Lung Cancer Voices podcast, and this is going to be a two-parter, and I'm sitting down virtually with uh, with Angus Pratt. Angus is a lung cancer patient and an advocate in British Columbia, and I'm here in Ottawa. Uh, so, Angus, welcome to the Lung Cancer Voices podcast. Thank you um, so much. You're very welcome, and we're delighted to have you here. We're going to split this into two parts because first podcast that uh, you'll be able to tune into now is uh, the one you're listening to. Is uh, we're going to hear a bit about Angus's lung cancer story and a bit learn a bit about about him, and and then also what he's uh, uh, been getting involved with as a patient advocate. And then I hope you'll enjoy that, and you'll want to tune in for part two of of the uh, podcast with Angus where. He's been uh, over the last uh, uh, little while attending as a patient some cancer conferences, lung cancer conferences, uh, virtually and in person, uh, internationally, nationally. And so um, we're going to get his perspective on firstly what it's like to be a, a, a patient at a medical conference. And then secondly, you know, maybe some highlights of the recent conference. So um, so stay tuned. But first, uh, Angus, for part one. Well, so welcome again, and maybe you could just introduce yourself to people who are listening to this. Well, as you said, my name is Angus Pratt. I was born at an early age in Keith, Scotland. My parents dragged me to Canada when I was uh, four years old, and my father was a veterinarian and, and found that there were not very many opportunities in, in Scotland, and so he, he started a sole practice in northern Saskatchewan which is where I grew up and, uh, and I went to university at the University of Saskatchewan, ended up with a degree in agriculture, and then spent the next 10 years doing agricultural development work in Panama in Central America and uh, came back to Canada with the dream of becoming a veterinarian, didn't make it, and, and went to work doing community development work in Northern Saskatchewan after I uh, got a master's in business administration. Okay. Um, spent 12 years there, and became a web developer and, and uh, moved out to Vancouver and, and, uh, and in the downturn in the economy became a web developer and, and have lived here for the last 20 years um, doing, um, when, the, when the economy turned down, I actually became a, a first aid attendant on high hazard job sites. So I have a little bit of an inkling into, into medical stuff from that perspective. Um, it is difficult to become a veterinar veterinarian. At least one of my good friends from medical school went to medical school as a backup because she couldn't get into veterinary school. Yeah, I take I take no. Yeah, it was hard, and I didn't make it. <laughs> oh, okay. So, and whereabouts are you in BC? I live in the, what I like to refer to as the dark heart of Surrey, uh, BC, and and so. Um, it'll come up in, in a minute or two when we start talking about the cancer side of things, but I'm treated at, at uh, the Surrey uh, BC Cancer Center in Surrey. And are you still working? 
Well, no, that's an interesting question. <laughs> One of the challenges when you're diagnosed with lung cancer is where do you go? Um, what do you do? Uh, my web development business, I've slowly been winding it down um, just with the anticipation that I'm going to die and I'm a freelancer, so I can't leave my clients hanging. The other side of it, I was doing uh, the occasional first aid job as I was able to, and uh, that kind of went away with COVID. And so I have been largely retired. I, it's, uh, it's one of the challenges. I'm, I'm almost 65. And so what do I do with, <laughs> with the time that I have left? You're very open about that. Just the language you were using there, what you do with the time you have left and working when you've got lung cancer and your life expectancy is not what you might have thought of before, but you sound very well, but, and you've had lung cancer for a few years now. So hopefully you've got a a little bit left in the tank. <laughs> I have a scan scheduled for this afternoon. We'll find out exactly how much scan, how much time there is left. Yeah, I mean, I, I tell people what a gift, and maybe this is the point where I should just give you a little bit of the cancer story background. Yeah. Um, it, it's I was working on a, a on a gas plant construction project and uh, was working seventy two days straight, twelve hour night shifts. And then I had to take weekend uh, three days off before they'd let me do another 72 days straight. So a lot of stress. That job started to wind down and I had a couple of lumps in my breast. And so I took the time to go and see my GP and I said, you know, I think this is male breast cancer. My mom died of breast cancer. My brother had male breast cancer. And yeah, you can see the genetic bells going off. No, no nothing that they've been able to track on. But and he said, yeah, that will schedule you in and get started on that. Oh, by the way, you've got another lump here in your other breast. And so that was the start of the, the cancer journey. Went through the typical mammogram, ultrasound, biopsies. And as soon as it came back as positive, the next step is a CT scan to see if it's metastasized. And it was at that point that they discovered a large tumor in my lung, 3.5 centimeter tumor in my lung. Um, of course, all the denial that goes on around that, <laughs> it's, uh, I had a round with tuberculosis while I was down in Panama, or at least we thought that's what it was. It could have been malaria too. <laughs> and I lived in a house with black mold. So, you know, there was all the denial that it wasn't going to be cancer. And they were simply trying to make sure that it was metastatic from the breast, which was the assumption. And when the biopsy came back from that, it was not. It was uh, primary lung cancer, adenocarcinoma of the lung. And that lung cancer had metastasized to the breast, had it? No, 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 two primaries. Well, three primaries because breast cancer doesn't go from breast to breast. So I had one primary in one breast, one primary in the other breast, and then a primary lung cancer as well. Oh my gosh. So you, wow. <laughs> yeah, I can see. I told you it's a weird story, right? But it is, it is so typical of lung cancer stories because they are so incidental findings. I mean, I don't know that I've had anybody, I have not met anybody who's gone through a screening program and discovered that they had lung cancer. It's all, it's all incidental. So that, so that it is happening now. I'm pleased to report that lung cancer <laughs> is, is running in, in British Columbia, also in Ontario, Quebec is launching at least a limited program. For Alberta now. is apparently launching. I was reading Alan Tremblay's stuff. He's apparently getting a program going in Alberta. So it is changing, but I, so it is 
it is changing and we're in this kind of years where things are emerging, but we are now seeing people diagnosed with lung cancer at an early stage. But so back to you. So then you've got you've got cancer in various parts of your breast. Did you have did you go under the knife or so no. The next the next step was a PET scan. It was, I was told right off the bat that it was unresectable because it was and I've never really gotten a clear answer to why it was unresectable. Um, but the next step was the PET scan and, and it showed up there were some tiny nodules in my left lung as opposed to the tumor in my right lung. It appeared to um, there were some lymph nodes that it was in as well. And so at that point it was stage 3C um, and we just did the old um, aggressive chemo radiation. Um, good old carboplatin, paclitaxel and 30 days of radiation. Right. So that's now, so when are we talking about that, 2018? That would have been June of 2018. Um, and, and eight weeks after that, I had a bilateral mastectomy. And two days later, I started on Dravalmolab. Dravalmolab, okay. So immunotherapy for the lung cancer. Yep. Uh, Here's where the story gets really interesting is in the middle of my chemo radiation, I got a phone call from my oncologist, all excited because I was EGFR positive. Okay. Okay. So, okay. So this is a complex story. So stage three lung cancer treated with chemo and radiation together over a stage three C. I mean, let's, let's get as close to terminal as we can without actually crossing that line. Right. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I appreciate your willingness to kind of be chuckling about this, but I guess time is part. You probably weren't at the time. No, and, and that's and, and that's a good point. I mean, it, it so two weeks after I started on the Dravalmolab, my wife was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She was given six months to live. She lived six weeks, died in the middle of November. So I had a very abrupt and intense involvement with palliative care and hospice care and sort of the short course, if you want to call it that. Um, I had, we can talk more about that if you want, but and then, so January, February, I'm starting to feel like, you know, maybe this Dravalmolab thing is going to work. Um, I went out and bought a new laptop <laughs> and, and uh, I started picking up the occasional first aid job and, and I'm starting to feel like it's going ahead. And I, I showed up for my scan in March and I was told that even though we've been doing the three month scans all along, that in March, there was some progression that there was some growth in those small tumors in, in the, in the uh, bottom of my left lung. So Angus, I'm, I'm thinking that people listening to this might be just horrified as to the, the 12 months that you've had at this point. You, you, Not even nine. nine you straight, then you, you find breast lumps, you get diagnosed with breast cancer, then you've got stage three lung cancer, then you go through that treatment and then your wife rapidly becomes sick and passes from a different cancer and then your cancer metastasizes again. I mean, that's, I can't really put that into words, how horrible a time and the sequence of events that was. So- A lot of support from other families? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I, at that point, I was, I had gotten involved with Lung Cancer Canada I'd gotten involved with Cancer Connection in the Canadian Cancer Society. 
And so I had a few pieces there. I had a very strong um, spiritual basis, uh, lay minister in the Lutheran church. <laughs> so, so that sort of gives you a sense of, of where I'm coming from there in that perspective. And a lot of people would tell me, you know, you're the bounciest, joyful, most joyful lung cancer patient I've met. And I, yeah, okay. <laughs> and it, there's a lot to go through there. There's a lot of resilience. And I sort of, you know, it, it's, I, I remember very distinctly one conversation that I had on, on the job site in, in, in uh, it was with the, the manager, uh, the teamster running the tool crib. And, and she asked me what was on my bucket list. And I just sort of said to her, you know, I've lived a very full life. I've had a lot of pleasurable things. There aren't any things on my bucket list. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm happy to live life and enjoy the moment that I have. And, and I think that that was, that attitude is what carried me through a lot of this. Wow, I can't uh, tell you how impressive that sounds. In my line of work, obviously, and you, you know, you, as an oncologist, I, I have difficult discussions with people, you know, on a fairly frequent basis. And, and uh, we often, I often introduce this topic of advanced care planning, which is the idea of when you have, you know, a lifespan, which is not what you were hoping or not what you were expecting. Uh, what are the kind of things to plan for? And, you know, and they include legal things. Do you have a will? Is it up to date? Someone appointed as a power of attorney? Do you make your financial orders and things in order, spiritual aspects, as you, you know, you mentioned, but also a bucket list, you know, if you've got less time, are there things that are important to you? But I have to say, it's, it's the times when people say to me that they don't have much of a bucket list because they feel they've already had a very fulfilled life is, um, as an oncologist and on sort of my side of the table, firstly, it's, well, I feel like I'm being ministered to at that point. If somebody says to me that they're kind of, they're okay with what's happening to them, despite, you know, the, the outside world looking on and thinking, no, this is not okay, what's happening to you? But if they say, no, I'm at peace with this. And God, it's just so uh, impressive. Um, I'm always sort of humbled by that. So anyway there you go that's why <laughs> thank you for that and and, and it is it, it is it, it i've asked that question in in conferences to oncologists i and, and the way i phrase it is you know i'm a patient i realize that you're another human being and, and i'd be a fool to think that you don't have to deal with one or two or three or four of your patients dying every week and, and how, as a patient, can I make your life easier? Um, which is a really, you know, most oncologists have built such an iron shell around themselves. They just kind of, you know, we deal with it. And you do. Yeah, the good news is, Angus, that, you know, in years gone by, you know, we, we, we did lose patients often rapidly because the treatments weren't very good. But now the treatments are so much better that actually... The, our clinics are, are, are not people dying left, right, and center. I mean, yes, it's still the highest cancer killer in Canada. And yes, as an oncologist, I see that up front and, and close. But, but the reality is there's far more people doing really well. And so I want to pivot back to you now because the, the, this sort of horror nine months that we're talking about was three years ago. Yeah. Um, so what's, what's happened from 
from 2019. So there are two big, two big pieces to that puzzle. Of course, with the progression, I came off the Dravalma lab in Finzi um, and, and moved onto Afatinib. Um, interestingly enough, because I was on tamoxifen for the breast cancer, I had to come off that in order to go on the Afatinib. And when I was handed the prescription for the Afatinib, I was also handed a prescription for Ozimirinitinib, which at the time was approved by Health Canada, but not funded. Correct. Yeah. Well, I jumped into the middle of that with Lung Cancer Canada, <laughs> and that was my first exposure. Um, I was in the faces of lung cancer, talking about that problem, the whole um, CADETH process. I, I, I got frustrated because as a patient, I wasn't directly allowed to speak to the CADETH process. I had to go through this big rubber mitt called Lung Cancer Canada, who initially didn't respond to my emails, <laughs> but, but did. And it has become a firm and fast, and, and I definitely consider Lung Cancer Canada to be my advocacy home now, despite all of my other involvements. Um, so I got involved in that process of trying to rush that drug and get it funded and, and discovered P-Coder and discovered the Pan-Canadian Pharmaceutical Alliance and all of those little pieces. So, well, so on that note, actually, people listening, if, if you do uh, have a story to tell, uh, please get in touch with lungcancercanada.ca. And um, we love to collect stories, podcasts in the Faces of Lung Cancer Report. But also, when we do uh, advocate for access to new treatments and approval of new treatments, it's very helpful uh, for us to have uh, direct testimony from patients, and they do now accept that. If, if you were um, a bit bamboozled with CADEF and PCPA and all of these, the, the drug approval process in Canada is complex. Yeah, so thank you for helping us through that. But so what did you actually take in the beginning? Did you? So I am on a FATNIB, and I am still on a FATNIB. Oh, great. You've been on it for three years then? Three years, yes. How do you find it? Um, you wouldn't know. If you were to examine me, you might see a little bit of a rash on my face if you knew what you were looking for. Um, right. If I would stay away from fatty foods and spicy foods, I would not have the diarrhea that I get occasionally. <laughs> but, you know, I, I just can't resist that. I live in Surrey. I mean, the home of the largest population of Indians outside of India, <laughs> of, of Sikhs and, and Hindus here. And, and it's just, you know, you can't stay away from good curry and so on. So, so great, great that you're doing so well. I mean, part of that was the advocacy there. An important piece of the puzzle was that BC Cancer denied me access to Tigriso. Every other province didn't. They put in place a rule that if you had been on a FATMIP for more than six months, you were going to stay on it until we saw progression. And then they would check for T790M and move on from there. And uh, But I had been on a FATNIB for eight months. Okay. And that so, really... That's terrific. And a FATNIB, it's an interesting drug. So for, for those listening, EGFR subtype of lung cancer is about maybe, well, across the country, it's about 13%. It's a bit more common in BC. It's a bit less common if you're, say, in, in the Maritimes. And it's a subtype of lung cancer that can often be treated with tablet treatments. And there was a first generation of drugs, ones like uh, called chafitinib and erlotinib. And then there was a second generation of which afatinib is, is one, which you've been doing so, so well on. And then there's a third generation, which is the main one is the other one you mentioned there, osimertinib. And, and just, I guess, around that time, 2019, was when osimertinib was, was really just becoming 
was just shifting into being our first choice. So now it is approved and funded, which is good. And then thank you for your work in that because it's you know it's a combination of you know clinical evidence and then advocacy from patients and and uh, and clinicians uh, to, to to get that approved. Angus, you know, we've been chit-chatting away and I was hoping we'd get through a bit more before we go to part two. We're already at the kind of 20 minute mark. So I think what we might do, if it's okay, is we'll we'll close part one now and we'll sort of call part one the the Angus story of lung cancer. And then we'll ask people to come back for part two of the podcast, where I'm going to ask you about where you've taken your lung cancer story your recent appointment to uh, uh, the Advisory Council on Research for the Canadian Cancer Society. You've been part of the STARS program at the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, or ISLAC. You've recently attended the Canadian Lung Cancer Conference. So I think if it's all right, we'll close part one, and then we'll come back for part two and dive into your role as an advocate and, and, and what your views are on how people listening to this might want to get involved themselves. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Looking forward to so, it. Great. Okay. So for people listening, uh, if you've heard things from this podcast that have touched a nerve or uh, you know brought up an issue that you wanted to talk about, whether it's around a fatinib or osimertinib or lung cancer or advanced care planning or some of these other issues, uh, you know, do speak to your own healthcare provider or, or support network or reach out to Lung Cancer Canada and we can try and support you too. Um, otherwise, um, thank you for listening to this and come back for part two. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore can, and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at LungCancerCanada.ca.